It's really good to see you guys here. Um, some of you, it's good to see you again. Uh, we've spent some time together. What I'm going to share with you in the next couple of days is different. And so you've not ever heard me say what I'm going to say if you've heard me say things before. If that made no sense, then don't worry about it. So there you go. I'm also really excited. You're going to get to meet some other uh, the men that I get to work with. They're part of a team that I have the privilege of leading. And uh, Dr. Jim Shaddix is going to be spending some time with you in the area of discipleship. Uh, if you don't know Dr. Shaddix, you should, and you'll want to know him. He's known as a professor of preaching, but he's also uh, an incredible mentor uh, and discipler. Uh, discipled men like David Platt and Tony Morita and Robbie Gallaty, people like that over the years, and, um, and is very much involved in doing the same thing here on our campus with students now. Uh, and then also Dr. Scott Pace, who's new to our campus. He was most recently at Oklahoma Baptist University. And Dr. Pace is also an incredible preacher, uh, a, uh, but also works in pastoral leadership and also in student leadership. So he's working with several unique programs. You're going to hear about some opportunities and some some of the things that Southeastern's doing, kind of infomercials in between sessions. We we're not we're not going to kill you with that, but we want you to have information along the way. But these two guys, uh, Dr. Shaddix and Dr. Pace, who will be doing a couple of the other plenaries. Um, I want you to know them also because these are all, these really are choice preachers. So if you're looking for guys to come do things for you or you need some, uh, like, like a cream of the crop type preacher to come in and do a, a really good event for you. I, and I wouldn't say that about everybody. I wouldn't say that about me. But I would say that about these two guys. So these two guys really are, um, if, uh, if we were looking at guys to lead a, a preaching conference, these two guys would do that. They ride in the area and do all kinds of things. So you'll get to know those guys. Um, and you're going to see a lot of other folks, leaders, that work with our team here and, uh, and do various things. So hopefully everybody has a, a little handbook, a little notebook for the sessions. Uh, we are going to walk through some plenaries and then through some uh, panel discussions. And then at the roundtables, what we're going to do, those will be during the meals. And we'll have questions at the table that relate to what you just heard. And so we'll ask you all to kind of have, they'll just be guided questions. You don't have to use those questions. There will be no tests. Um, yeah, you've already hopefully done all that. But, uh, uh, you know, we can. You know, we're good at that, but uh, that's not our goal. So, uh, but there'll be uh, questions at the tables that you'll, you'll have there to kind of guide and discussion to, and also application for some of the things that we've been talking about. Lester at the state convention also asked us to make sure we asked a couple questions along the way. So we wanted to make sure we included those. So. We appreciate him and their office uh, very much as well. I appreciate uh, Jonathan Six and Chris Allen and, and their office and pulling all this together. Obviously, I know that many of your colleagues and our friends are very much involved in other things t today and this week uh, because of last week and this weekend. We, uh, I'm, the, uh, I'm the interim pastor at Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Boone right now, and so I drive to Boone every weekend. and. Uh, uh, so I'm Franklin Graham's interim pastor. I always tell people that, so I'll, I'll say hi to him for you. Um, <laughs> no, no, I won't, actually. <laughs> that, that would require me seeing him. But anyway, <laughs> uh, he's always on the road. But I do get to see his family some. But anyway, the great, great church. But, but uh, even in Boone this last weekend, because of the way it turned, you know, they, those in the mountains even got slammed before it was over with. Um, I'm the Associate Vice President for Global Theological Initiatives and Ministry Centers at Southeastern. That's the longest, I think I still hold the, the letter title, right? No, most, most letters in a title. Doesn't mean a lot. I've uh, been here about 12 years. My background, for those who have no idea who I am, my background is pastoral and missions. Um, I do a lot of church consulting, which is one of the reasons why I'm probably standing here right now and, and uh, have done some of that with some of you all, even, so. Um, but we're going to talk about that. I teach uh, missions, evangelism, leadership, church revitalization, those kinds of things. But um, Anna Dobb, who's over here, um, is also somebody you ought to know, the almost Dr. Anna Dobb. And uh, she's working on her Ph.D. in missiology, and she's going to be helping us with all kinds of logistics. So that's Anna. If you need anything, Anna can help you a lot, too. Our office, let me just take 30 seconds and tell you what's going on. This prayer request, praises. Um, our office, through our Global Theological Initiative, we actually train leaders around the world. So we're engaged in training people right now from about 26 different countries, um, six continents. Uh, but this isn't just distance learning. What we, we have a distance learning office where you can take online classes. This is a hand-picked, vetted cohort of 
leaders. So in other words, these are either going to be uh, denominational leaders, these are going to be strategic pastors, these are going to be professors of seminaries, and then we put them in cohorts and design specific curriculum for their context and then take them through normally master's level training, sometimes other levels. Um, and so around the world, we're working in partnership either with existing seminaries and colleges and doing things like that, or sometimes where there is no training. Uh, a couple of exciting things happening that I could probably say out loud because this is being recorded um, is we are, and this is public, so this is okay. We are working with, the, for example, the Viet Vietnamese Baptist Convention, and we're creating a, a national Baptist seminary in Vietnam from scratch. Um, and so that hopefully will be announced in January. They're working with the communist government on that, who has actually opened a window for them. Um, we also have a Persian leadership initiative, which you won't hear about. You're going to hear about several of these offices the next couple of days, but one you won't hear from is our Persian. And so right now we have close to 1,000 Farsi speakers in training with us on some certificate levels, and they're in their countries. And if you know who speaks Farsi, um, that is primarily Iran and Afghanistan. And so we have about a thousand students right now studying with us um, in that program. And it's kind of done in a side door fashion, as you can imagine. Uh, but I can say all I just said because that's on our website, so we're okay. But, uh, and then other cool things, you're gonna hear about stuff in East Asia, our, our work with Spanish speakers. Um, uh, we have dedicated personnel in certain, certain niches like that. Um, so my office deals with around 1,200 to 1,500 students uh, in North America and around the world, uh, one way or another. And then I also work with the ministry centers. You'll hear from them, the pastor center, the, the mission center, and the Center for Faith and Culture here. So I, I work with that team too. So anyway. So if I can be of help, let me know if uh, anything we can do for you. Uh, my, again, my background was, was lost. My back then, then, then when I was uh, saved, I uh, got involved in a thing called the church and... Um, a fascinating creature to me because I was not raised in it and then um, fell in love with it and have been trying to kind of fight for it ever since, I feel like, you know. Did a lot of consulting. I was with Rainer for several years uh, before Lifeway uh, and uh, have done and still do. I was consulting yesterday, so consult a lot. So, What I've been tasked to do uh, tomorrow is share with you about some church revitalization. You've, some of you have heard me talk about that before in the sense of that topic. In fact, I've done about two and a half days with some of you before. Uh, what I'm going to talk about tomorrow is completely different, as I mentioned earlier. So it'll be different material, more of a summary. But this morning, what I've been tasked to do is talk about a vision for associational ministry to the point to where I was even talking to Lifeway and Broadman and Holman about this about the potential of or the necessity perhaps for at least an ebook on a subject like this. Um, I, I am not credentialed or qualified to be the one who decides what the vision for associational ministry is. And so my first admission to you is, is that um, I have no right to tell you what that vision is. What I have been able to do is observe um, hundreds of churches up front and have been involved in many, many associations. And I also train state convention teams, et cetera. So I've been around denominational entities quite a bit. And so I just wanted to share with you a few thoughts and share with you kind of a few ideas. So I come to you as a missiologist. That's my academic training. My degree is in missions. I come to you as a consultant. I come to you as the conference and retreat guy because I do a lot of that stuff. I come to you as an interim pastor, and I come to you as a, a pastor for over 20 years who was really involved with his associations. Um, I had brilliant uh, DOMs, AMs, or AMSs, I'm not sure, or executive directors. You're an executive director, so whatever you are. Uh, some of you are missions coordinators and strategists and things like that. Uh, I pastored in the West, and... Uh, uh, in my early years, when I had absolutely no idea what I was doing as a pastor, uh, not that I know that much more now, but especially with back then, uh, some DOMs really took me under their wing and were really powerful influencers in my life. Uh, in Arizona later, uh, where we were the hub of church planting in northern Arizona, um, we really were mission strategists. And our association, Yavapai Baptist Association in those days, had 16 churches in it, 
I pastored the larger church, but the DOM of Yavapai, who also kind of worked with NAM, I, that's what he did. It was a church planning strategist. I mean, that was his primary function in those areas of pioneer work out there. So I've seen a, a lot of variety in this, so I come to you as a friend. Now, um, if you know me, some of you know me, you know that I'm also a straight shooter. Um, I, I, I think shooting crooked is a waste of time and kind of stupid. Uh, and so I tend to shoot straight. And I have some pretty hard questions on the PowerPoint that I want us to talk about for the next little bit before chapel. And then you can go to chapel and pray about it um, <laughs> and decide whether, decide whether you want to leave or go rush up to Danny Aiken to see if he can get me fired. Um, <clears throat> I've, I've had folks try that before. So that's all right. So let's talk about this for a minute. Let me, let me share with you uh, quickly and, and kind of, you know, uh, to provide a little clarity. If I'm going to say the word vision, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean mission. Uh, I do see a difference between these words. And so for me, and this doesn't make this right, this is just the way I'm referring to these words in this presentation. So you can flip this anytime you want to. For me in my conversation, so when you hear me say these words, I just want you to understand my vocabulary. And I say mission, I'm talking about the predetermined, unchanging will of God. Um, and vision is that contextual plan to fulfill that. So the mission doesn't change. I don't get to decide the, the mission. Um, it's already predetermined. Uh, the vision is a contextual plan and strategy that is changing, and we may change it often, and we have to figure that out sometimes. We work with God and the Holy, as, as the Holy Spirit works with us. To, to do the strategic planning to figure out what a vision is. So when I say a vision for associational ministry, I'm not asking you what your mission is. Um, I, you know, it's not up to me to debate whether we're supposed to fulfill the Great Commission or not. It's not up to me to debate, although people I knew do, but, but I'm, not, I'm not here to do that. <laughs> uh, the Word of God has a mission for us. It's His. It's not ours to redeem the nations. We're part of that. Bring Him glory. All those words. We can piper-esque ourselves to death if we want to. We're good. So... So the, the mission is what God wants us to do. I don't get to decide that. He's, he's already decided that. Does that make sense? We good? All right. That'll help. So l let's talk about this. And this is a principle that some of you have heard before, and this is about it. But beyond this, it gets new. So, but this really is important to me. So we need to always ask the right questions. We need to ask them in the right order. And this guides everything I do in ministry and everything, a lot of the consulting I do. We're... Uh, I'm working with several churches right now, some on different issues, and I constantly talk to them about this. You've got to ask the right questions in the right order. I call it the discipline of why. There's nothing fancy about that title. It's just what I call it. And we've got to ask why, then who, then what, then how. And I know we can cognitively grasp that. Uh, the, 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 the difficulty here is not the intellectual side of this. The difficulty of this is the disciplinary side of this. Will you be disciplined to actually do this? Because we tend to di devolve and digress into what question first? How? We're good Americans for the most part. And so we tend to digress into what and how as the pragmatists that we say we're not. But that, is, that tends to be what we do. And the problem is, is you'll, never, you'll never reach the right how if you don't have the right why and the right who. And we don't do a lot of who conversations um, in our culture. And so when we talk about what does it mean to be an association, what, why does the association even exist? You know, we've got to go back to those kinds of ideas always. Why does the associational ministry even need to be here? Why does the church exist? One of the first questions I'll ask a church is, are you really a church? And, and, uh, and they'll say, well, sure. And I'll say, prove it. Prove it. How do you know you're still a church? How, are you really making disciples? Yeah, oh yeah, we're ma how, prove it. How do you know? Why? Why can you say yes to that? What? Who are you and who are we supposed to be? So in other words, if we're doing this for an association, who is this association helping these churches to become? Who is this association helping these pastors to become? Who is this association as a collective becoming? Who are we? Who, who be we, as we'd say back in Cherokee County in Oklahoma? And so we want the want and the how, but first we've got to ask the why and the who. And so in the, in the end, we're asking ourselves, what are the end goals? And so we talk about backward planning. 
this is something that I'm doing. I'm doing this to Mount Vernon right now. They had to create a bunch of discipleship goals for their church. We're preaching a sermon series about those discipleship goals right now. But we've got to figure out what's the end game. What is the end game? I teach evangelism. In fact, we teach evangelism today. Anna and I are going to have to, pitch, you know, we're going to, have to uh, pass that back and forth this afternoon uh, so I can be with you all. But what, what's the end game in evangelism? So, so in evangelism, this is what I say to him, for example. So we go to, we go to Revelation. We go to Revelation 5 and 7, right? You all have done this. You know this. And so in Revelation 5 and 7, you see the throne room scenes, and you hear about people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So we recognize that in the end of time, this is what's going to happen. And so we recognize that part of our job right now is to help make that happen as far as evangelism. It's evangelism class. So we're talking about we want to see people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation saved because we know in the end they're going to be in the throne room. Well, what's the end game of an association? What are the end goals? And I'm going to be meaner than that in a minute. And you'll love me before it's over. But how do you get there from here? And that requires definitions, that requires standards, and that requires expectations. That, that rarely will, if ever, happen, this isn't a guess, that will rarely, if ever, happen in organizational life, any organizational life, in a reactive, haphazard, automatic way. This is a very intentional, proactive process that has to happen. In order for people to understand what those end goals are, and then to be able to say, this is how we get there. That's, that is the vision. That's the plan. Because if these are the end goals to bring God glory, to redeem the nations, to fulfill the Great Commission, whatever it is that we think the mission is, and you get to define that biblically, I pray, but however you do that, with the cool bumper stickers and banners and bulletins and whatever you do. The plan to get there is that vision. How do we get from where I am right now, where we are as an association right now, to that place right there? So I know that you would have much of this written down someplace. You'd have this written down in, in different things. I'm sure you do, but I'm going to be meaner than that. We'll see where we go here in a second. So... You all did a national study. I've got a copy of it right here. I don't know if everybody here has even seen your own national study. I don't know if you claim that as your national study or not. But anyway, the, the National Association of, of Southern Baptist Conference of Associational Leaders, SBCAL, did a study report in which this, and it was shared at the SBC, where they talked about des desired proficiencies. And we'll talk about these words for a minute. Now, the word proficiency means a high degree of competence or skill. It means expertise. It doesn't just mean you're capable. It means you're better than just capable. You're an expert at this. In education, we tend to shy away from proficiency. Maybe we're scared of that loftiness. And we tend to use the word competency, which some people would use these as synonyms. I'm not going to. Because the idea of a core competency is the ability to do something successfully or efficiently. The word proficiency means you're better than that. So part of what a leader is, now think of it this way, what a leader does is a leader is proficient so that his followers can be competent at times. And then some of those followers will actually become proficient too. And then they thus become the next leaders. Perhaps that's one way of looking at those words. Don't make too much out of that, but I made a lot out of it by myself in my office for a while, and then I gave up on it. <laughs> so you have a national study where you have a list of specific proficiencies, and then a task force has been created to help talk about how are we going to implement strategy to reach these proficiencies. Bob Lohman leading that task force. Later today, we're going to have a panel discussion, if everyone makes it here safely, with Rick Wheeler, Ray Gentry, Bob Lohman, and we're going to talk a little bit about that national study and about that task force. And we're going to talk about the relationship of some of the things that I'm talking about and how all this works together. So that'll be coming hopefully after chapel, after lunch, I think. So if we really want to be competent, or maybe even more, we want to be proficient, what are we going to do? So, let me ask you a couple of questions about what is an association in terms of proficiencies 
and competencies. Now, I met with a world-class Baptist historian about this. I did. I had to take him to lunch. It cost me money to do this. So, so far, I'm in the hole with you guys. So I took him to lunch, and I said, "Tell, I want to know historically. I mean, this guy, this guy writes more books. I mean, this is all this guy does. He's like a walking Baptist history encyclopedia. Tell me about associations. Why, how, what, et cetera. You all, you all know these answers. I, I, I'm not going to go through all that with you. Most of you would have the, the common sense even answers that would promote it. But, but think about this. This is a geographically based network of shared core competencies and affinities led by those with specific proficiencies. I actually kind of like that sentence. I worked hard on that sentence. Because that's, in a sense, what I think an association is. Now, you may not like those words, and you may not agree with that, and you never would call it that. You would never say that out loud to your people. I get all that. But let's think about this for a second. This is a geographically based network. That's what it has been historically. Now, in a minute, we're going to ask whether that's still the best way of doing things. And if it is, why? Because that's a legitimate question that's getting asked today. I've got articles right here asking that question. got one right here that's asking that question. Should we still have geographically based networks? Now, I'm saying that these were geographically based networks of shared core and shared core competencies. In other words, everybody has these in-game goals. They understand what they are, and they have affinities. They have a love for. They have a desire for. Perhaps a passion for those things. Shared core competencies and affinities. I have a desire to do this. I'm drawn to this. I like church planting. I like. Uh, discipleship. I, you know, I'm drawn to that. This, that's an affinity. And so we're a geographically based network of affinities as well as seeking after some core competencies. And because I'm drawing a distinction between the two words, led by people who have very specific proficiencies. And part of what the task force is after and what the study report is asking, how can we help associational leaders have those specific proficiencies? I think that's, that's how I understand it, is how can, that, how can you all be the best you can be at being the leaders of other leaders, of other leaders, of those who are seeking these core competencies. Historically, when I was talking to my friend, he talked about some of the, one of the reasons associations formed in the first place wasn't, it was, you know, you got to think about the time frame, you know, no technology, communication, you know, you were isolated and you needed one another. You, you needed one another for that you wanted one another. Part of your affinity was fellowship, frankly. You enjoyed getting together just to be together because you're out there all by yourself and you enjoyed seeing your other, bro the other brothers and sisters and getting together with one another. Another, another issue was education. M many of the folks early on didn't have education. So the association brings in that guy with that college degree, and everybody needs to go hear that guy because nobody's ever heard, you know, that newfangled guy before, you know. And then, and then doctrinal, uh, Bob and I were talking about this, doctrinal purity was part of it. How, how, do we, how do we maintain a doctrinal assurance that we're all, doing what we ought to be doing, believing the same way together. And, and even the way we used to do ordinations and even the way we used to share together and, and commending and recognizing the calling of those with specific proficiencies. Everybody following me? We could name many others. My, my question to you is, is, is that still current? I, I'm not asking should it be. I'm asking is it? Because we're going to get to this next slide, and this is maybe the most important one, and this may be what I want you to really pay attention to. Does anybody still care? Now, notice the heading of this slide. I've written a book not too long ago that kind of, in fact, you have a slide about it, which I'm not trying to sell a book, but, but I'm, I, I talk a lot about understood value. Now, those two words are really important to me. Is something valuable to somebody? And do they really understand that? And both of those words are important. 
Because we can sit there all day long and say, yes, the associations are valuable. Yes, the associations are valuable. Well, sure, they're valuable. But if nobody understands it, there's no understood value. Does anyone still care? Now, listen to, listen to how, where I take this. If so, do they understand why they care? Remember the discipline of why. Why does anybody care whether there's an association or not? And would they be able to articulate that? Would they be able to share with you why they care that the association still exists? And, and then we've got to recognize this. What real understood valuable impact does it have upon their journey toward completing or achieving these kingdom core competencies, proficiencies, fulfilling the mission, etc.? So, we have to ask the question, are associations really still relevant? It's a question that's being asked. It's a question that I hear. It's a question that sometimes I'm in discussions about. Why should I be a part of an association? Part of what you do at a seminary, not all you do, but part of what you do at a seminary is you are helping people to get ready to go out and to do ministry. Some of them have not done much before. Some have done some. Some have not done much. And the, the ones who have not done much, there are things that they are, are trying to understand. And part of what they're trying to understand are some of those relationships that they need to have. And, and I can have a conversation with some of our students, and I say, well, one of the relationships you ought to try to make sure you have is get to know your associational leadership. And you know what some of them will say? What? Who? What's an association? So we need to recognize, is an association still relevant? So a couple of questions that get asked, and I've been asked. In fact, I've had doctor, I used to be the director of the doctor of ministry here, and I've had doctor of ministry students do projects on these things. And one of them is, is do we still need uh, geographically based networks why don't we just have affinity-based networks? Well, we do have them. Uh, and, and, but why do we still need geographically-based networks and not just affinity-based networks? In other words, why don't I just join Acts 29? Maybe, maybe theologically or doctrinally there's something there I don't like, but something like that, just some church planting network. You know, church planting is my affinity. So instead of my, so why do I need to be involved in my association? Let me get involved with this national network of people who share my affinity. What do I need my local association for? Or do we still need dedicated vocational associational leadership and building space? Or should we move toward some type of coordinating pastoral team? That's what this article is about. That's what one of my DMIN students wrote about. In Kentucky, that's what they did. Their DOM retired. They didn't rehire a DOM. They now have a committee of pastors, and, and they do their stuff that way. And that's what this article suggests as a, mod, quote, unquote, the title, a modest proposal for Baptist associations. Now, we can sit there and say, well, we, we, don't, we don't like those questions. I understand. I understand we may not like these questions. I, I have more you may not like. What should the relationship be between the association, the state, and the national entities? Our association is just for smaller churches. If your association ceased to exist, how would it affect your churches? And would anybody even care? It's the old church of irresistible influence question. And can you objectively answer these questions. But who could? So we either have to defend ourselves, if I'm speaking for you, you somehow justify our existence, or there needs to be a real reason for our existence. And so part of what I'm proposing to you that would be helpful in the world I live in 
And the conversations I'm in is to have a really well-articulated reason, a real one, a relevant one, one with understood value of why an association exists. Well, we're here and we've always been here. You know, it's interesting because you would counsel pastors and revitalization processes not to think that way. You can't think that way about yourself either. You know? And so we need to be careful to make sure that understood value is something that we think about and that we're thinking about the right questions in the right order so that we can answer, why are we really here? And there needs to be such a valid, passionately driven, wonderfully kingdom uh, achieving reason that it's incredibly valuable. There's no way I would not want to be involved in my association because... I love being in my association because. My association is incredibly important to me because. What is that understood value that these pastors, that these churches could articulate back to you? A lot of arguments that can be made about these questions. Um, I was an interesting bird in the sense that I pastored larger churches by the, at, before I went to seminary life and was still involved in the association. So I, I, I know that for some that doesn't always happen. For me, it did um, because the association meant so much to me. But what, what is the real drive here? And what should we be thinking about? So... Let's take a little strategic journey for a few minutes. Back to backward planning. We create the right end goals, and then we need a disciplined pathway to get to those goals. It doesn't matter what you're doing. This is what you ought to be doing. <laughs> I mean, this is how ministry ought to be happening. doesn't matter what your ministry is. This is how ministry ought to be happening. You ought to, you ought to recognize the biblical godly end goals and you need to be creating a disciplined pathway to get there. And so part of what I strongly recommend is that there needs to be some serious and objective assessment and identification to sit there and say, who have you been and who are you now? And where have you been and where are you now? And who and where should you be? And I wish you'd do that on associational levels. I make churches do this all the time as a consultant. This is part of the process we work through. Some of you have seen that. And we, talk, and we do heavy assessment, qualitative and quantitative. But on an associational level, can you really objectively justify your existence? Is it just because you have been so you ought to be? That would be kind of a cool Baptist t-shirt. We have, we've always been, so we ought to continue to be. You know? Or is there an understood... Now, don't miss these words. I'm going to drive them home. I'm, before it's over, I'll, if you just understand, understood value. I don't know what else that guy was saying, but understood value. Do your leaders understand the value? And are you doing everything you can to help them? So you work into vision development, and vision development is simply the plan of how do you bridge the gap. This is where we really are. This is where we ought to be. How do you bridge the gap? That's vision. That's all it needs to be. Don't make it harder than that. Vision development. What's the plan to bridge the gap? How will we bridge the gap? So if you notice, we've moved from why to who to what and to how, and then that adjustment, what must change? How will you change it? When will you change it? Will you change it? So who are you working with on a regular basis to help assess and to plan and to affirm this is exactly what we ought to be doing? Because in the end, what we want to be doing is we want to be engaging the mission. We, we want to ask ourselves, how will we remain focused on those end goals? And this has to be proactive and not just reactive. 
There has to be a drive to stay focused on those definition standards and expectations that are being set. And if your national study report helps you with that, if the task force helps you with that, fantastic. If that gives you vocabulary, fantastic. If that gives you some of that. But if contextually, it's going to be different. Yours is different than yours. It's different than yours. It's different than yours. They're not always the same. I mean, there'll be biblical language that's the same, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be accomplished the same way at all. I, I don't like cookie-cutter ministry. It never makes sense. That's horrible missions. That's not good missiology. And so are we actually going to create and continue to create understood value? And how are you going to communicate and engage that with your leadership? And that's where you've got to understand relevancy and redundancy. You've got to say something important. You've got to say it to them over and 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 over. They've got to hear it all the time. Here's understood value. This is, this is why. This is who. This is understood value. This is why. This is who. And there needs to be these things. And this is the same thing that needs to be shared. And tomorrow I'm going to talk to you more about that in their local churches. So what's in a name? Hmm. If you decided to call yourself, which I know you don't have to, but if you decided to call yourself an AMS, you know, forever it was director of missions. That's what I, I didn't grow up with anything. But after I was saved, that's what I knew. If the new term AMS is actually something you like or, you, you know, whether you call yourself that or not, it's something at least the idea about, you need to think about what that name is saying. Are you really a missions strategist? Do you know how to develop missions strategy? Uh, you know, this is something that we do, something we work with people all around the world who do. And so you need to understand how to develop mission strategy. How do you do context assessment? Do you know what your association really is? Now, let me give you an argument for why I still like geographically based networks of core competencies and, uh, and, uh, and affinities. This is one of the reasons I still like geographically based networks. I'm the interim pastor, showed you this on purpose up front, in Boone. How many of you are from the West, West North Carolina? Okay, mountain culture is different than Eastern North Carolina culture, right? Now, I grew up in the foothills of the Ozarks in Oklahoma. It's been amazing how much I can relate to people in Western North Carolina, even more so than right here. I'm at home in Boone. It's much more natural to me the way these people are thinking, uh, and I won't get into that. We're on tape. But, <laughs> but it's very natural to me. But mountain culture is different. Some guy coming from some other place to work with that bunch of people from a totally different con think we think about this we we would we don't we we wouldn't do this anywhere else you you're going to work with people who understand the culture and context and and those who are the leaders in missions think about it isn't that a primary part of missions a primary part of missions is is you work with people who understand their context missionaries learn language they learn culture they learn worldview they spend time with it they know that and if we're not in geographically based networks, I'm not sure how you're going to understand the culture. Now, I'm not against affinity-based networks for certain things, probably. I'll say it that way. How was that for being undefined? I mean, I'm glad people get together and plant churches. I'm glad they get together and do things together. That's great. As long as they're doing things that actually fulfill kingdom goals. But I still think... There's a place for the geographically based because you, but if you don't become the contextual expert as the AMS, then what value are you? If you're not really doing that context assessment, if you're not the most knowledgeable missionary about your context, I mean, you need to be as knowledgeable about your context as a missionary is overseas about their context, about their people group or tribal group or who, whatever group however you break it down. And you need to be an expert. So you need to study and study and study and study, and you need to be able to do contextual assessment. Contextual assessment is also going to be a study of your churches. 
It's, your, it's, your, it's the culture around you, but it's also your churches. And that's where you start getting into what I call resource assessment as well. And one of the things that sometimes I, I wonder if we do well is do we really understand the resources that are available to us in our context? And I'm not just talking about money, and I'm not talking about what we do with the state or what we do with NAM or what we do with whoever, Southeastern. I'm talking about the, the pastors. I'm talking about other pastors. How can I get this pastor to help this pastor? How can I get this guy who has a degree in this or has studied this or has some experience in this as a pastor to come and help these guys over here who don't have that knowledge? How can I be the networker of resource? And that's how perhaps the bivocational guy and the large church pastor sit around the table together, right? I hope it's more than just social media. I hope it is social media, but it needs to be more than just social media. To where that guy who's in that large church who has some experience doing something actually becomes the guy who helps you to train these other guys who have not done that or something. So resource assessment is people, it's churches, it's money, it's all those things. But then it's, you know, a good mission strategy is then going to take all this assessment and it's going to contextualize methodology. So what we need to do in this association specifically, what and how can be different than your association? And some of it's obvious, right? Some of, I mean, if you're in an urban area versus a rural area, or you're, again, east or west or north or south, there are things that are different. But, but to recognize the methodological contextualization that needs to take place and how that needs to happen. And it needs to be driven, once again, by what are the desired proficiencies for leadership and the competencies for membership, perhaps. If you don't like that division, then just give them all one to the other. But what are the end goals, and how am I backward planning to achieve those end goals in my context? Everybody needs to pray, but how do you pray? When do you pray? How long do you pray? That's contextual. And so how we plant churches in this place compared to how you're going to plant churches in that place could be very, very different because perhaps the the needs are different, perhaps the, uh, the populations are different, perhaps the language is different, perhaps the ethnicity is different, perhaps the socioeconomics are different, perhaps, you know. And then good mission strategists figure out what their strategic partnerships are. Who can help us do what we want and need to do? And that can be churches, that can be entities, that can be seminaries, that can be... So the ultimate goal must be, and it's capitalized on purpose, mission-driven, the mission of God, and not just self-preservation or justification. I'll be honest with you, I run into guys, they don't know why you exist. I would love to be able to give them really good answers. Okay? And that's called understood value. I want to be able to give them an understood value. Leaders need to see authentic value and understand what it is. And that's going to be, be, be taking place when you're pursuing the proper competencies and proficiencies because that becomes crucial. What is it that we're trying to become? What is it that we're trying to achieve? What is it that the end game really is? And so what you're going to be looking for then is you're going to be looking for these paths of partnership that you'll engage even more. Uh, proactive uh, will gain more than simply reactive. I've said that about three times because I see that. And then intelligent contextual research will assist in the development of more productive vision paths. Most churches don't do any assessment. That's not a guess. That's a statistical truth. Uh, I live in this world. I can do stats if we want to do stats. Um, most churches don't do any assessment whatsoever. Most churches do no strategic planning whatsoever. Um, and so for them to have an association that's engaged in such things can be a very foreign thing. And so you're going to have to take your guys to help them understand why we need to walk this path. 
I do not believe in today's environment that Southern Baptist associations have the luxury of not doing this. I don't believe that. I don't believe that in today's environment, Southern Baptist associations have the luxury of simply being reactive. Uh, and I'm not talking about reactive in terms of disaster relief or reactive in terms of pastoral care. I mean, those ministries are all part of what you guys do. That's great. What I'm talking about is, is in terms of why you exist, understanding what your vision is, and having a clearly spelled out pathway that your pastors all get. They may not choose to get on board, but they get it. They know why you're there. And they could articulate that to any member who asked them uh, and be able to explain that to them. And so that intelligent contextual research is really helpful, and most people just don't do that. They don't. I'm, I, make, I make a living as a consultant just doing that for a lot of folks. So being driven by a deep spiritual appreciation and understanding of why will lead you to more dependency upon the Holy Spirit. Why, why are you? Who are you? And I don't mean just as an association. I mean you as an individual. Why are you alive today? I ask this often, and I've asked this to you guys, some of you guys before. On my phone, I have a, a memo, and it's entitled, Why I Breathe. It's right here. And it has scripture, and it has prayers, and it has promises. I know why I'm sucking in oxygen today. I need that. It keeps me going. Why are you here who are you, and who are you supposed to be? And now what are you going to do about it, and how are you going to do it? So it's work for each one. I don't think that there's a PowerPoint presentation that any human being can give to you to say, here is the vision for your association. <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a missionary. I think each association has to go out and work through a framework of process to determine this is the reason we exist. This is why we are. This is who we are. This is why we exist as an association. And we need to ex ex express this in such a way and with such redundancy and such clarity that the various leaders in the association get it. They understand it, and they're able to articulate it, and they're able to share it with members. But more than that, that then leads them to want to buy into it and to become a part of it. All right, so I've made sure that I've left room, and I'm going to try to do this every time for me. I don't know what the other guys are going to have time to do. But I wanted to have time for dialogue, some questions, and uh, we'll, we'll do a little more during the panel discussion too, but let's, let's talk a little bit for a few minutes. So questions, comments, clarifications, defugalities, what do you got? Yeah. Yeah. So the question I'm just going to kind of repeat because I'm on a mic it's being recorded. So, you know, when you're talking about a church's vision or mission statement, talking about fulfillment of Great Commission is something that we can kind of articulate on an associational level. Is there a consistency? Is there a way to articulate the same things? So, you know, I, I think, you know, I mean, it's a question that people have asked me. People know that I have spoken to you. People know that I've done your retreat. People know that I have a relationship with some of you, and people ask me, why do we still have associations? I mean, that's just a question they ask, uh, which, is, which is a question that has a lot of statement behind it, doesn't it? There's a lot of statement behind that question. It says something about, obviously, the way, what kind of church background they were raised in and, and probably the lack of involvement of their church in their association, wherever they came from. Um, and not all these people are students. Some of these are pastors that I consult with. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I, 
most recently was in consultation relationships with about 103 churches. Uh, I've culled down, that down considerably right now. <laughs> so I don't have 103 anymore right now, but 103 at the same time. So I'm in a lot of conversations with a lot of people. Um, and so um, is there a consistency in associational life? It, the way I want to ask it is of why and who. Now, there are bullet lists that I think you could put on a whiteboard. Here's why an association exists. You know, we're going to do this, we do this, we education, decide, you know, we're encouragement. Uh, uh, you know, there's the, there's you, you guys get to be the therapists for uh, churches when they lose a pastor and the pastor when he loses a church. Uh, you're the pastor of pastors, you know, that line that some people like and some people frankly hate. Um, and then, uh, you know, we're mission strategists, you know, cooperative missions would be a phrase that you'd, you'd talk about. And we're going to do breakout sessions about some of these things. Again, the, the, the doctrinal disciplines at one point. I mean, think about it, you know, in Southern Baptist systems, uh, if a church goes rogue, Who's the one that calls them on the carpet? To, to a large degree, the association. Now, that's probably those lines are getting blurred a little bit now, I think, but historically. And Bob and I were talking about, again, I mentioned it earlier, it used to be that when somebody was going to be ordained, the local church didn't just do it by themselves. They would call the, the DOM and they would call the other pastors of the association to come in to form the ordination council or board or whatever to come in and do the interrogations, the inquisitions. Uh, and make sure that everything was was being done well, uh, and uh, and and that may still happen in your association. I'm sure in others it does not ever happen, probably. So, is there a consistency in what the purpose, even biblically, or in terms of Great Commission fulfillment for the association? Anybody comment? Yep. Any other questions or comments? If I were to come to your association, and you know, you never know, maybe I am, and I were to ask your churches, do you understand what the association is for, and do you care? What do you think your pastors would say to me? I do a lot of survey work like this. Do your pastors understand the value of this network, this geographical network of core competencies and affinities? What do you think? And, right. So size matters. So are associations primarily for the smaller churches now?
Well, and it's an interesting question for me, I think, to think about in the sense of, of if, if you're supposed to be and you're going to be the associational mission strategist, are you the best mission strategist in that geographical region? I mean, are you, are you becoming, as these leaders, the leader that these other leaders really need to help them to accomplish their work? Are you working together? So, for example, if, the, if, you were the, if we were the International Mission Board and you were overseas, you would have some kind of cluster leader. You'd have some kind of cluster strategy leader. You'd have some kind of, uh, or, or maybe you have a sin city here, you know, strategist or something. Are, are you the known strategist? Are you the one that, uh, is there an understood value in you as an associational leader as the strategist? for missions or whatever it is that those other leaders would go to for the resources and for input, you know? And are you creating the network around you of those uh, who are perhaps, even though geographically oriented, perhaps affinity-based, in other words, say church planters and others, are you uh, surrounding yourself with those who have skills in those areas as well to create the teams that people need? Right. Yeah, that's good. So as a pastor, you may want to engage, but you don't know how. That's good. So having these clear, understand, understood pathways of how we engage together, how we accomplish these goals together, how we define these goals together. I mean, the, part of my issue is, is who's defining, who's defining the core competencies or the goals of the association? Who's doing that? Um, is that you by yourself? Is that you with a team of pastors? Who, who's doing that? And, and then how are you getting that, the, the ideas of this then means these resources are available to you, these ministries are going to be available to you, these, these kinds of opportunities are going to be available to you to the point of the pastors have an understood, uh, understood pathway to obtain and to access. Yes, sir. Good. Yeah, and again, <clears throat> I mean, as, as a former pastor, if you're not helping me do what I've got to do, I don't have time for you. I mean, that's just bottom line. Because I don't have time anyway. I have time to breathe. So if you're not helping me do what I've got to do, then I don't have time for you. And so I've got to have a knowledge that you're going to help me do what I've got to do. And that, and that the way you're going to help me do that is valuable enough for me to spend my time engaging with you in that, in that possibility. 
And that's where, again, the understood value. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I talked enough to, to guys to where, well, we, you know, uh, it's kind of like my dad used to say, my dad who wasn't a believer till much later in life. He used to say, I don't know why you people are so pushy. You know, you got a church building, you got a sign. If they want what you want, they'll come get it. And uh, that's just not true. It's not statistically true. It's not philosophically true <laughs> and spiritually either. And so, you know, you say, well, we got a website. You know, they know what we offer. If they want it, they'll come get it. And, and that's, that's not going to be the way understood value is created. Understood value has got to be more contextual than that. It's got to be more personal than that. It's got to be more uh, engaging than that to where um, they understand that, that this needs to be a part of my normal routine and experience to be engaged with this geographical network around me of people. Uh, in some places, there's probably a a bit of a more, and I don't, and this is this really is not based on any fact. Uh, I would suppose that in some scenarios there would be greater possibilities and easier ways than others sometimes. In the sense of, if I was in a metro urban area, and the churches had this concept of we know we need to reach the greater Charlotte area then there might be this concept of that means we need to work together with the other ch churches of Charlotte to reach Charlotte as compared to a county-based uh, with multiple small towns or rural or all everything to where how, how, you help, how you help somebody who lives in, this, in the town or the city relate to the guy who's out there and the, the, you know, the bivocational guy out in the rural church or whatever. Um, and and I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if you do or if those are just different strategy groups at that point. 